Coming up on this week's show, completing every N64 game ever. A legendary FPS comes to the Master System. And we chat to Dave Gilbert about reviving point-and-click adventure games. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you love beat-em-up games, you've got to check out The King of Fighters, The Ultimate History All-Star Edition. Now, this version is limited to just 3,000 copies with a slipcase that plays in-game sound effects. Seriously. So you can get that and the rest of their retro gaming books. Check out their collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay. Now, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding. And you know they're big supporters of the retro community, so you can get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 344, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, the podcast that every Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the golden age of video games. And we appreciate, you know, there's so much going on in the world, obviously here in the UK, being a very weird week, you know, very strange at the moment with the uh, the passing of Her Majesty the Queen. But we like to think this show is a little bit of escapism and maybe taking you back to cosier times. Yeah, kind of talking of cosier times, we mentioned uh, Minidisc. And it was really weird, like last week, uh, mentioning that and seeing Paul Andrews actually tweeting. And he had a mini disk drive on his PC with a little label of the retro hour on it. He'd put it into the PC, download the MP3, blast it onto his mini disk. And he was actually listening through the mini disk player. So I encourage a lot of people (laughs) to do that. You know, actually, we were talking about mini disks on our um, little Facebook group the other day. I was amazed that there is actually a mini disk emoji on the iPhone. Oh, cool. Wow. <laughs> it kind of blew my mind. But yeah, we love the fact that people go out of their way and do stuff like that. I mean, we're talking this week about, you know, um, maybe doing like a, a cassette tape version of the Retro Hour as a little uh, little perk that we might do at one point. So um, we love just, you know, taking advantage of old technology and bringing it into the modern world. And also, I mean, this show, I wouldn't say, you know, we're not stuck in the past. There's plenty of stuff going on in retro gaming and technology that we bring you up to speed with every single week on the show. And we'll talk about all the big headlines that have happened over the last week in just a minute. But I've got to say, I think one of my all-time favourite genres of video games has to be point-and-click adventure games. Now, I'm particularly hyped because in about a week from now, we're going to get the brand new Monkey Island game that officially lands on uh, Talk Like a Pirate Day that's coming up next week. Which I thought was quite appropriate. How appropriate. I sound like a pirate with my uh, croaky voice today. Yeah, Ravi had a bit of a late night last night. night. (laughs) We're actually recording this show on a Sunday morning because um, Joe's about to uh, jump on the Eurostar and head off to Paris for a few days, aren't you? So, <laughs> yeah, we're uh, we're we're a little bit ahead of schedule. We're recording about three, four days sooner than we usually do, and I'm a little bit worried because it's actually Nintendo Direct this weekend. Oh. So I'm just really worried that like we're gonna miss so much news. Well, like, well, Joe, you need to get some point and clicks on the go. I will if you've got your Switch. Yeah, I, I am taking my Switch. It's fully charged. I've downloaded Resident Evil 4 because I really fancied playing it and we've been talking about Resident Evil again a lot recently. But yeah, give me a point and click. What what, sh- what shall I play? What shall I play, Dan? Thimbleweed Park would be good. Thimbleweed Park, actually. Thimbleweed that's Park. on the Switch, yeah. Right, yeah that I'll is by that Ron Gilbert, who made Monkey Island. Thimbleweed so, Park. Um, I'll give that a download then as well. Play that on the train. I've got five hours. 
So I'm training to London and then training from London to, <laughs> to Paris. Yeah, actually, that is kind of my travelling game as well. I generally play that on planes and trains and stuff. So, um, yeah. yeah, good little introduction. Well, this week we're going to be talking about someone who has done a fair bit to revive the point-and-click adventure game because even though it feels like, you know, the kind of back big style now. We've got a new Simon the Sorcerer game coming out. There was a bit of a what we call the wilderness years of point-and-click adventure games for quite a while. Yeah, they, it was like a lost genre, wasn't it? They kind of disappeared, and uh, I really liked them, and it was kind of everything went 3D, and there was lots of like advances in technology. And point-and-clicks, they were still innovative, but they kind of got left behind a bit, wasn't, wasn't it? And now there's kind of like a, a bit of a revival with fans and... Um, you know, people were always behind the scenes or online making like fan versions of games and um, kind of creating that. And uh, Dave was really important with that, with the uh, Adventure Game Studio. Yeah, this is uh, Dave Gilbert, who's going to be our guest this week, who's um, the founder of Wadja Eye Games. Now, they are an indie video game developer, um, and he's been making point-and-click adventure games since around 2001, but he was inspired by a lot of those old Infocom and Sierra games. So we have a really good chat to him about those um, classic 80s and 90s adventures, even going back to like typing adventure games before point and click. But also he's been doing um, some incredible indie games over the last couple of decades, many of which, if you look at them, actually feel like they could have come out of the 90s. I mean, he's, he's got a big affinity for those uh, 2D style games. Yeah, they've got that real look and like that's really cool at the moment, you know, that kind of indie game like old school pixel reference look and it, it it just looks really awesome like you've you've checked out a few of these titles haven't you dan yeah some really good ones i mean he started with that probably his biggest known game is um the shiva that came out back in 2006 but he's done stuff like the blackwell legacy uh, puzzle bots as well um resonance there's quite a lot of them and I'd say, you know, if you look at their website, um, there are a lot of these games. You know, Joe actually asked for a few suggestions there for point-and-click adventure games. WadgetEyeGames.com, there are a lot of them on there. And he's actually working on some uh, some at the moment that you'll hear about in the interview. Um, there's one that on there called Techno Babylon. There's kind of a, um, if you like that kind of cyberpunk-style mm. game, which I know you're a big fan of, Joe. This one looks incredible. So if you like, I mean, kind of those late 90s, early 2000s, graphic style point and click adventure games a lot of that kind of look on his website as well so we're going to hear about how he helped revive the point and click adventure genre and his love for a few of those classic games as well with our special guest dave gilbert he'll be coming up on the show in around half an hour from now now of course before that we'd like to bring you up to speed on everything that's been happening in the world of retro from over the last seven days and uh, i think i've mentioned this on the show before i'm actually quite embarrassed as someone who's been a gamer for over 30 years, that I could probably count the amount of games in my life that I've completed, maybe not on both hands. I'd say maybe there's less than 10 games in my life that I've actually sat down and so, got right to the end of. When, when you say completed, because obviously this is going to lead nicely into our... Into our, <laughs> into our I don't just throw story. this together, Joe. <laughs> when you say completed, do you mean like just saw the end credits, you did the game, you know, Pre- pre-achievements, like, maybe. Or do you mean, like, you did everything you can possibly do in the game? No, I, I mean, actually, yeah, see the end credits. That's embarrassing, Dan. It is. <laughs> I either, I don't know whether it's, you know, lack of attention or whether it's lack of gameplay skills. <laughs> Even as a kid, you know, <laughs> I'd get into a game, but then something new would come out and I'd kind of be like, oh, I'll, yeah, a bit bored of that now. I bet, I bet you've game. completed uh, Monkey Island, though. 
Monkey Island 1 and 2, yeah, definitely yeah. games that I've completed. Um, there were a lot of games, though, because I remember, you know, when I was really young and I got my Commodore Plus 4, there were a lot of games on there that didn't actually have endings. Mm. So you get to the end and they either just loop back around to the is beginning. Is your excuse, is it? What about, <laughs> yeah. the, what about the last 35 years? <laughs> Can't complete it if it hasn't got an ending. Like, um, I've done a lot of uh, RTS games and, you know, real-time strategy. There's usually, like, a single-player mode, but a yeah. lot of it's just, like fighting battles and there's not just really playing, a, yeah, an end game, game in there. Yeah. I mean, there is stuff like, yeah, adventure games in particular, I think they're probably the genre that I'm most likely to finish because you want to see the full story. Um, so, you know, stuff like Life is Strange, I've completed in recent years and, um, you know, Beyond Two Souls, Heavy Rain, stuff like that. I've completed all those games. Um, I think I completed one of the Call of Duty games, maybe COD 4. Um, that's probably the only one I've actually sat down right to the end of. Uh, but this guy really puts me to shame. This is a guy that in just six years has sat down and completed every single Nintendo 64 game. Yeah, so this is Ace Gamer Sam, who pr- pretty much there was a, uh, you know, about five, six years ago, there was a, a, a thread, a feed, you know, pretty much saying, you know, who's going to complete an entire games library at once? Who's going to be the king of N64 or or the king of Mega Drive? Um, and I think the N64 is a really good, library to go for because there's only 296 games that surprised um, me i always assume there's a lot more than that no you know i think there's even less power games um, yeah it so depends which region doesn't it depends which region but yeah this there's is, probably exclusives in other areas yeah yeah so this is the north north american region he's completed and it's taken him five and a half years i'm assuming that's like in between his normal day job and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> he hasn't left I guess his N64 for five years. Yeah, like because I'm, I'm assuming uh, if you were to really throw yourself at it and just do it full time, you could probably do it quicker. But that is that is definitely a massive achievement. And he has been hailed the king of N64, which I love. And he started with Super Mario 64, which he said, essentially, he absolutely adored that game. It was the first ever 3D game he played as a kid when he was around about eight or nine years old. And ultimately, even though he started with Super Mario 64, it pretty much ended up being his favourite one out of the library, alongside mm. Banjo-Kazooie and Perfect Dark and Diddy Kong Racing, which are all fantastic games. And I think the N64's got such a fantastic library. And like I say, a good amount of games to kind of stick with. I want to know, it doesn't detail whether he did it on emulation or anything like that, but in the picture, he stood in front of like a huge library of cartridges. So oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume he did it on the original hardware. It must be easier to do it nowadays, though, because you've got, like, playthroughs that you can watch and watch people's yeah. technique on YouTube. You can also read guides. You could do all of that stuff. Like, he's probably got a bit of an advantage compared to, yeah. you know, doing it back in the days. Well, I, you know, funny you should mention that because of I was thinking about it this morning. Um, I was reading the article this morning, and um, and my my friend Jason, who I've mentioned before, he's almost got a complete Mega Drive collection. And once he's done that, he's trying to get all the variants and everything. Like, I think it's like 700 games he's trying to get. And he keeps asking me to do a channel with him where we play Mega Drive games. And I thought, you know what? If he's got a complete library, we could do this. Like, we could sit down and we could try and play through it. And, you know, it might take us about 10 years and play every and play and complete every single Mega Drive game. But that occurred to me. Would it be cheating if we got stuck on a game and we checked YouTube? Well, he was streaming as well, so yeah. he probably had people in the chat like, oh, do this or this will help yeah. you out, you know, and yeah. it, it's kind of like you're completing it, but with lots of other people, it's it's a bit different from being in isolation, 
in a room like I've got to do this myself <laughs> that's, and, that's like how I would do it because I'd be yeah. worried that people would ever go at me like using <laughs> like, I guess if you're stuff. streaming it there's, there's evidence that you did it as well because otherwise yeah. you could just say oh yeah I finished them all I'm the king of the mega drop yeah yeah and you yeah, didn't yeah. want to you didn't want to ring the um, expensive phone lines back in the day as well <laughs> the Nintendo helpline so, yeah. yeah two pound a minute but yeah so I'm guessing he didn't use YouTube and stuff I'm guessing he like you say he used the chat and people helped him and or if he was stood jumping at something and somebody said, actually, you need to do this in the chat. Like, I guess that that helps and makes it a lot easier. Um, but still very, very cool that he's like dedicated five and a half years to the N64. You know, you always had a blagger at school that was like, I've completed it. Like that. And there must be people that have actually done this before, but not like maybe people haven't known about it or it's not being put online or anything. Well, even buying a complete N64 collection, I can't imagine that's cheap. Um, and it, like, like you said, looking at the images, it looks like he's got the original games as well. I mean, I don't know whether he used EverDrives or whatever, you know, for some of them. But um, And particularly with that console's library as well, I think N64 games, a lot of them are quite in-depth. And it would take quite a while to get through mm. them. I mean, if you go like to, to previous generations, talking about, you know, the few games that I have completed, I can probably go through Golden Axe in around 15 minutes, you know, from start to finish. Um, yeah, a lot of them were very short games. You know, when you got to you know late eighties, kind of early nineties games. Yeah, but um, but they were designed for the arcade, weren't they? They were meant to be yeah. like um, you know ten p munchers. So yeah. with infinite credits, you can get through them really quick. But you know, if you're playing stuff like Ocarina of Time, I imagine that's probably at least a weekend dedicated to finishing that game. It's it's good doing a like defined console collection because mm. like computers and stuff. You know, Amiga there was over like two thousand games. So um, oh yeah, don't even bother. Yeah, <laughs> Ravi turns around and goes, "I'm going to do every PC game." <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Dan, yeah. you've got a complete Jaguar collection, haven't you? So you could you could maybe do this. Yeah, I'm not far off. I mean, there's one or two Jaguar games that I haven't got that are like you know they go for about seven eight hundred quid on ebay which i'll never get but i think i've only got about two or three left to get yeah i mean there are quite a lot of jaguar games i probably wouldn't want to play for that long if i'm honest because uh a lot of the library leaves a bit to be desired shall we say even though i do love the godzilla yeah th- um, there might actually be some games on the jaguar that you can't complete to be yeah, fair probably not, not because me. of like high scores just because they're that bad like there isn't a <laughs> like nothing yeah. happens. The, the developers didn't even bother finishing the games. Like, yeah. No one's going to play for this long. <laughs> so, but yeah, all hail the king of N64. So if you want to check out that article, I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this is a computer that I, um, I haven't had a lot of exposure to, but I do remember at school, my friend Graham had one of these, the Amstrad CPC 464. Legendary machine. And I remember him playing Ghostbusters on there. And I was always amazed when it did the little uh, sound effect, Ghostbusters, at the start. And he played it on a green screen monitor. Now, I didn't realise that according to this article, that's really cool, someone's actually modded and made the world's first portable Amstrad CPC 464, turning this into not even a laptop. It's actually got a built-in screen um, that you can take anywhere. But I didn't realise you couldn't actually apparently hook the Amstrad CPC up to a normal television. Now, I have used, I've got a later Amstrad model that came with a monitor, and actually it's a really weird design. The monitor actually powers the computer. So you've got to have the monitor, and you've got to literally plug it into the back of the machine to power up the computer. But this mod here, a guy called Michael Wessel, has put together an Amstrad CPC 464. He's removed the tape deck and actually put a screen built into the machine. And I've got to say, this thing looks extremely cool. 
It's it's really interesting. This is and like I was wondering with that monitor thing. Was that because Alan Sugar wanted to shift a load of monitors? So wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, only work <laughs> with those ones. Yeah. Um, like looking at the four six four, but as you mentioned, it's got the tape deck in there, which is usually quite huge. Um, but nowadays there's like solutions for the tape deck, and um, I think it's called the HXC SD card drive, which kind of emulates it on an SD card, yeah. and um. Removing that tape deck actually leaves a load of room in there. Um, this 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 mod's pretty interesting because I've been doing like an Amiga laptop, and uh, it's interesting to see how he's kind of approached this one because um, he's he's got this like little TFT screen in there, but he's also got this conversion board, and uh, a lot of the components are actually quite big, but he's managed to cram it all in there because the case itself is pretty long. Um, He's got an external power supply on there, which is interesting as well, that he hasn't got the batteries in there. And these giant speakers as well, which, to be honest, I don't know. Maybe he loves it for the sound and stuff, but they look huge. <laughs> I don't know if, <laughs> if, if it would help like reduce the footprint if he used something a bit smaller. Yeah, it, it is very cool. I mean, the fact that, you know, we're talking about the guy that completed all the N64 games in five years. This guy here has actually modded this Amstrad and made a portable in just 40 hours which I think is yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah, I think I think that's that's the thing. And it's like, it's all a bit glue gunned and stuff, but it works. And, um, you know, he's he's actually got one of these, like, upscaler converters. And they're quite big, but he's ripped all the casing out and he's put it in there. Like, I wonder how hot it's going to get inside there. And I also wonder, like, how much power does these Amstrads draw? Because that's been a big problem with doing the Amiga one, because you have to power the screen as well, don't you? Yeah, well, these um, these small TFT displays, I, I imagine they don't draw a lot of power. Man, you probably They're know. Probably like you? twelve volt or. Well, this is a small screen as well, isn't it? Because, like you said, what he's what he's done. If if people haven't seen the images or the video, he's took out the basically the lid of the cassette deck that you normally find on the right side of an Amstrad, and he's replaced. I mean, it's about the same size as the lid of a cassette player. He's replaced that with a small screen. Yeah, and he's got an arcade converter board for like arcade screens and he's mm. kind of got that running through which i guess is probably because of the weird weird display as well there might be smaller converters or stuff like that but um maybe with the amstrad these arcade boards are the, kind of the way to do it I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable enough on the uh amstrad's video output but you know he's done a nice job it's quite neat i like that he has it in a backpack as well <laughs> so he can take it anywhere and then he's got this like extender cable as well for the sd card and you can run all your stuff off there i think i think this is quite interesting and uh i loved i've always loved that long form factor actually and having the tape drive included so by removing that you've just got so much space just think how much cooler you'd look joe with this on the Eurostar instead of your switch i i would look pretty cool with this i might get like detained um <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, I think he's, he's missing a trick by not putting like a top of a guitar on there and you know, <laughs> turning it into like a portable Amstrad guitar. Um, you know, it's funny because we went to Norway a couple of weeks ago and actually you guys bought a load of games to sell. Um, <laughs> we, we were slightly held up at airport security due to your um, N64 games that you were bringing through. Yeah, I uh, I brought about 10 N64 games with me and um, I didn't really think, but yeah, they had batteries in them and I got pulled to one side and I had to go through it all. And it was quite funny because when the woman opened it up, 
she was just like, oh, I remember these. <laughs> she was going through them. She's like, I had this one. I had this completed one. This, had this one. Completed that. Yeah. And then I had a couple of PS2 games and they had the GT. I had like the three PS2 GTAs. And she was literally like, oh, I completed these like kind of thing. And then she let me go. But yeah, I did, I did. I did get taken to one side for 10 minutes, which was quite funny. So I think if I had a portable Amstrad, I think it'd be longer than 10 minutes. I'd get pulled to one side. Yeah. You'd have a few questions to answer there, I imagine. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a very cool mod though. So I'll put that video if you want to check out how he's done it. It looks very, very cool in our show notes as well. Now, one of the most impressive games I remember seeing as a kid was um, Wolfenstein 3D. And I vividly remember the first time I ever saw that game running and being like amazed at mm. a, the concept of a first-person shooter. And really that was obviously the start of um, what would go on to become one of the most prevailing genres of video games. I mean, you know, the FPS is still one of the biggest genres around now. And I think, you know, really commercially for a lot of people, Wolfenstein followed by Doom and games like Quake obviously were kind of the introduction to it. But I remember it needing, at the time, you know, relatively demanding hardware. You know, at home then I only had like an Amiga 500 maybe when that game came out. Uh, But it turns out, obviously there are some very clever people in the retro scene these days who do what we previously thought was unthinkable Someone's actually porting Wolfenstein 3D to the Sega Master System. This is really interesting, but it's not just the Sega Master System, which is like the headline everywhere. It's also the Sega 1000, you know, the... The uh, SG-1000. The SG-1000, the one before as well. So this is a user um, under 4 megahertz who's ported this. And it is a demo, and he has said there's still a long way to go, but it's it's... It's very playable and it's very clearly Wolfenstein. It's it's not like, oh, what game's that? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like when it's running, it is clearly Wolfenstein 3D running on the Master System, which is it's just insane because I don't think there was even a Mega Drive release. No, correct me so, if I'm wrong. So what this is, is um, he created a thing called Mazenstein before, which mm. is like a 3D maze code. Yeah. And, and that was like running on a lot of stuff. And then he's put over the... Um, Wolfenstein assets so it's not like a port from the original but um the idea is that this this engine is is going to work really well on the master system but also like you said he's looking to port it he's also looking to port it to the Amstrad uh, 464 which we were on about earlier and the micro b as well which was a Australian system but um it, it is really interesting he, I think it wants to do spectrum as well but um it seems like he's his whole aim under four megahertz is to have one of the lowest kind of reduced systems, but have them still running stuff. And um, you know, there's a lot of compensation with this one. Yeah. With with like you know, there's stuff like you have to remove your gun to pick up items and stuff. And you know, it's not going to run as smoothly as Wolfenstein. It's going to be yeah. a kind of in-between kind of, a, yeah. like a D-make. <laughs> in-between Wolfenstein. Yeah, it is, yeah, it is a D-make. And like you say, there is, you know, a few things like, like you say, you can't pick up items if you've got your gun out. There is only ever one enemy on the screen and they will only shoot you if they're in your line of vision. So they won't shoot, you know, like in Wolfenstein and Doom and stuff, you can walk into a room and start getting blasted by enemies that you've not even clocked yet they will only start shooting you if you look at the enemy. And then also it's only programmed that you lose one health each time you get shot. And a lot of these are due to limitation, memory limitations, not because the master system can't count more than one health off and stuff like that. It's just, it's just cutbacks that have been made to save on the memory. If that makes sense. This sounds like it could maybe be a game that I could add to my 
few games that I've completed list. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you could actually. <laughs> yeah, he's also looking at doing a MSX and Game Gear as well. But um, it is pretty mad. Like, I think this is going to look better over time as he kind of optimizes it. He finds different chip uh, tips and tricks and kind of, you know, uh, works on it a bit more and slowly, slowly it would develop. Like the one that we saw on the Amiga Dread, that took ages yeah. to kind of get there. And that's a mm. like a Doom-ish clone, you know, and that's what I'll kind of call this a Wolfenstein-ish clone, but using some of the original assets. But um, it's... We- it's an interesting piece, isn't it? Like we've seen carts before that have had Raspberry Pis in them to run stuff, and that feels a bit cheating. But this actually runs, like, and you can get the demo ROM as well. You know, for those old systems that were sprite based, you actually kind of forget. Cause, I mean, because because FPS games are so ubiquitous these days, you kind of forget how hard it was for people to get those running on hardware that mm. wasn't designed for it. So, I mean, you mentioned the Amiga there. I remember it got so many attempts to kind of make a an Amiga-like Doom kind of clone, you know, games like uh, Gloom. I remember actually being quite a big fan of that game. But, yeah, I, that was kind of the thing that killed a lot of these systems. You know, when Doom came along, everyone wanted to play that, and it wouldn't really work on, on these old machines. So uh, the fact that people are actually getting these FPS games running all these years later on hardware where we previously thought it wasn't possible, I think is a massive achievement. So it is a work in progress. If you want to check out the uh, the work so far, I'll uh, stick the forum link and the video as well. You can see that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, we do have, just a little mention that we have a patron that helps support this show. Obviously, we do this every single week for you. We uh, like to keep up to date with all the big stories that have been happening. We're, we're looking all the time, aren't we? Every time we see something you or I, Joe, are like, you know, adding it to our little doc that we've got on Google Docs all throughout the week. Just like, oh, I've spotted this, I'll stick it in there. This is really, I mean, you know, if we're not doing that, Ravi's on the hunt for guests, researching questions. I mean, I'd say we probably spend time every single day on the Retro Hour. Oh, God, yeah. And we talk every single day, every yeah. single night without fail. You know, Ravi pops up, I'm doing this, <laughs> which is retro-related. Um, but, you know, it, it's talking to our best mates every week and stuff, but we, we do live and breathe retro which is why we see these things every single day but it's all made possible because of the support of our backers and the support of our fans yeah Yeah. and that's the thing we're an independent podcast i mean we haven't got any big mm. company behind us nothing like that three lads who love games who enjoy doing this show and we we love talking to people as well who made the games as well that's always been a big aim of this show and uh, like you said i mean we have a patron that really helps us do this helps us keep the lights on helps us bring out episodes every single friday and we give back as well don't we ravi yeah, we do. So we've got some awesome perks and benefits for backing. For a start, you get an ad-free version as well. And on that version, you get two extra news stories, which is pretty awesome. You also get access to the backers chat in Discord, which is really nice. Um, the After Hours podcast as well, where you hear us discussing all kinds of stuff, testing games. We were playing recently games that you guys suggested that we never played before, and that was a really good, exciting adventure. And we have the um, chat as well, which is our patrons chat on a Sunday where we all get together on on a huge video call like the Brady Bunch. And we kind of talk <laughs> about um, what what we've got, pickups. We talk about technology and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's really good. And I love the whole kind of community behind it as well as, you know, just being able to get those extra stories and stuff like that. It's uh, definitely worth doing. Yeah, now that we are midway through September, which blows my mind, 
Um, that means there is another Patrons Hangout coming up on the uh, last Sunday of the month, so we're getting close to that now. So if you'd like to be on that and uh, nerd out with us and get access to all that stuff Ravi mentioned, if you can back us on Patreon, you'll uh, unlock all that. I think there are about, what, 26 episodes of the After Hours podcast now that you can check out. And of course, for joining us on Patreon, you will get a mention in the world's most prestigious high score table, and that is, of course, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And I'll let you guys give a welcome to our latest supporters. Hall of Fame. A massive thank you to Dave Moyle and Paul Wilcox. Who backed us on Patreon this week. We massively appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join the Retro Hour Patreon community, you'll find all the details on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we're going to be joined by this week's special guest, Dave Gilbert, talking about point-and-click adventure games in just a minute. Now, this has been everywhere this week, and I've got to admit, this one completely passed me by back in the day. Were you guys familiar with Disney's Gargoyles? I am. <laughs> I See, I, I, bit, I've never heard bit, of it. Well, there's been a bit of a discussion on, um, on the comments in this Nintendo Life article. Um, a few people saying, oh, I don't think this ever made it to the UK. Right, no, okay. it didn't. So, the car- so, so history lesson guys <laughs> um so gargoyles was a disney tv show in the mid 90s like 94 95 uh, and we did have it as a show in the uk and it was one of the i don't want to say one of the first shows but it was it was one of them where it was like m- movie kind of quality but in a tv show you know it had like a lot of the animators from like aladdin and stuff like that working mm. on it but it was a tv series and there was a Genesis game for it that came out in November 95 and it was meant to get ported, you know, to, you know, power regions and Japan. And then it was meant to get um, a SNES version, but ultimately they all got canceled. Um, But the game itself was developed by Disney software. um, And then uh, Bernavista interactive that later became Disney interactive studios. So it is a completely Disney made game and the graphics are those really beautiful kind of like hand-drawn animated graphics, which are like in the Lion King game and the Aladdin game. And essentially, there's been a bit of a resurgence of the TV show because of when Disney Plus came out, what, around a year or two ago, maybe a year ago? Gargoyles, the TV show, is on Disney Plus. And there's been, there seems to have been a little bit of a resurgence of it from what I can see. You know, people going, oh, I remember that show. And obviously about two or three years ago, they re-released a few of the Mega Drive games for like Xbox One and PS4 and, and Switch. It was the Aladdin and Lion King pack. Yeah. And then they re-released that pack with the Jungle Book on it as well. And these games are very, I think they were developed by the same people. And they I think look, Gargoyles... I remember in that as well, that they give you all the, the, the hand drawings and everything as yes. well. It was a real collector's item, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. And essentially, they've announced at the Nintendo Direct this weekend that they're doing that with gargoyles but they haven't they haven't said what consoles it's coming out or anything we can assume it's coming to the switch and i imagine it's going to come out on xbox and playstation as well because the others did you could get the pack on all three of the main consoles and i think it came on steam as well but i imagine it's going to be a very similar situation to what you've just said that there'll be all the artwork in there you know and you'll be able to kind of see the making of the game and stuff like that and I think it'll be good because it's like, I've never played this game, not even on ROM or anything like that. It's just one that I, I'd never heard of when I was younger. And it wasn't until I was an adult and I found out it was an exclusive Genesis game, which has become a very expensive, rare game as well. But it, it, it is also an, in, an interesting choice out of, you know, the massive Disney library that there is for yeah. the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis and also, you know, the Super Nintendo and stuff, all the games 
they have selected its gargoyles, but it might be because of it didn't get the love it deserved in the 90s. Even the TV series, I mean, w- did you watch it when it was on then? Yeah, I watched it. I had a few of the toys. Oh. I, ha- I actually have a really, really early memory of, um, I'm going a bit off topic here, but at Christmas, my family, we always did, you got a present on Christmas Eve. And I remember, I want to say Christmas 1994, my present was a toy of the main character, Goliath. Um, who's the guy on the front book cover. I got a toy of him, and I remember sitting on Christmas Eve and watching the Super Mario Brothers film, which I think right. premiered on TV. You know how you always had big films come out around Christmas on TV in the UK. Yeah. So I have this really fond memory of having the Goliath toy. It might have been 95, the Gargoyles toy, and watching Super Mario Brothers, <laughs> the film, on TV. So as soon as I saw this was coming out, I was like, oh, wow, like that's crazy. Because it seems to be, I mean, looking at the, the comments on this article, and they've got the Wikipedia page up as well, it only ran for a couple of series then. There's only three series of it. It seems to be a bit of a, a cult classic now. Yeah, it's a cult classic. And like I say, it comes back to that, you know, a few friends I've spoke to about it have gone, oh, I remember that show, like, mm. you in the depths of their mind. Um, I, I, don't, I don't recall whether it was, like, my favourite show or anything like that. I think it was just a toy my mum had bought me and I knew what it was. Just one of those situations, you know, you watch every cartoon when you're kind of like at young age. But it's definitely one I'll be picking up and I'm looking forward to just simply out of curiosity because I've never played it. And watching the gameplay of it and stuff, it really looks like one of those Mega Drive games, Genesis games, sorry, that really pushed it to its limits. Because, you know, right at the end of 95, you know, by this point, we've got the PlayStation, we've yeah. got the Sega Saturn and stuff. And some of these games which were coming out that late for the Mega Drive and Genesis and stuff were we're really overlooked and the animation on them is amazing. I'm looking at a video of it at the moment and it's like the parallax is amazing on it. And yeah. there's this whole scene where they're on top of the trains and it's like, yeah, it's just really huge and all the clouds are going and stuff. It, it looks really advanced for that system. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you hit the nail on the head there, the parallax scrolling and it looks amazing. And there's so many layers of it in the modern, because of you start off in the medieval times and then you go into modern times. And it's like in the modern times, you've got like the skyscraper level and they're all moving, you know, on their own layers. And, you know, I know that's something the Mega Drive was famous for, but they've just, they've really nailed it. There's like four layers going on there. It just looks amazing. So I remember we did an episode, God, probably about two or three years ago now, with um, William Anderson from Virgin Games, mm. who worked on Jungle Book, Aladdin. And, you know, he actually talked us through all of Disney's kind of requirements. And they were very yeah. particular. You know, you'd have to get the animation to be as good as, yeah, the movies and the TV series, you know. So these games always looked incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and and, it, and it's good that Disney were that hands on. Mm. Um, at the time, it was probably a pain, but then you get these really, really beautiful looking games. Yeah. So uh, no release date as yet, but it, it is coming. So we'll keep an eye on that story. Now I can hear a collective groan as I introduce <laughs> the next story. Should we talk about the Intellivision Amigo? If we must. <laughs> now, just to kind of bring it in. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we haven't. I mean, there's been a lot of YouTube channels that have covered this kind of ongoing saga. I think the last should, time should, we mentioned we it, try to explain what it is first uh, to people. Go on, Ravi. Uninitiated. <laughs> it was uh, in television, big old company, and they uh, tried to revive it by creating a modern console that would kind of be like a family sit around co op console with like modern titles and stuff and they did get a hell of a lot of funding from what i remember it was it was very big funding and it kind of got very hyped and uh not much has been delivered and like um 
Tully, Tommy Tallarico was the uh, CEO and uh, he was like the evangelist kind of guy going around uh, talking about it a lot and he's actually quit and they've kind of admitted that uh, it might never actually get released. So so let's pick up from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things, I mean, yeah, you, you kind of summarised it well there and there's even been stories about them laying off a lot of staff and they had some really lavish offices that... I think, you know, I saw, saw some YouTube videos that they're now up for sale. But there were, I mean, one thing they were kind of really selling it on initially was that there were going to be some system exclusives that you could only play on the Intellivision. If I remember, wasn't there like an Earthworm Jim game that was promised for it? Yeah, and they had a lot of stuff that was based on like the old old games, um, but kind of revived concepts of it. Um yeah, I think I think there was meant to be an Earthworm Jim. It was meant to be an exclusive, like Earthworm Jim sequel, but mm. still, you know, but with the same old school two D, those hand drawn graphics. Funny enough, what we've been talking about. And, and um, interestingly, I saw they got a new CEO as well, which was a uh, Phil Adam, and mm. uh, Phil Adam was the previous VP of business at the uh, Coco Chameleon. Oh no, Coleco Chameleon. That's oh, it. God. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. he's coming from that kind of uh, history to now. Had it, oh, and yeah. I, I thought that was the kind of death nail for the project when that happened. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd leave that off my CV if I was him. Yeah. Uh, and probably this one as well, if I'm honest. Um, but it looks like, I mean, one of the things that were going on about was, you know, they're going to have these console exclusives on there as well, including a, a licensing deal with a company called BBG Entertainment in Germany. And they apparently commissioned two games, uh, Dynablaster, which, if I remember correctly, wasn't that just Bomberman, but it was retitled for... Yeah, the European yeah. audience of Dana Blaster, due to copyright reasons, and a game called Brain Duel as well, um, that were apparently going to be Amico exclusives. But now they're saying that um, <laughs> those two titles now are going to be available across multiple platforms as well as the Amico. So pretty much, I imagine it means it's going to come out on Switch, PlayStation, Xbox as well. And they reckon that's going to be a good thing for the Amico to spread awareness of the console. It's weird because, like, <laughs> like the company itself did say it might never actually get released. Mm. Um, so I'm thinking they may just think we've got these titles, we need to make some money, like somehow. And it has had lots of investment, but um, I don't know where that's all gone. <laughs> Interestingly, but uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of people that are well more informed on the Amico, and there's a lot of people that kind of do full summaries of it. Um, CU podcasts seem to be very into the Amico stuff. For us, it's a bit of a kind of like oddity. Did you guys think that it would ever work? I remember us being very sceptical. I mean, the thing about our show is we never like to kind of crap on anything. You know, any project... I crapped all over the Switch, but... Um. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Rango's got the best track record of, uh, you know... We, I, I, I feel like we've not covered the Amico too much just because of, of the negativity around it. So mm. when... There was a point where it was in the news every single week, and every week we were just like, "Let's not put it in." Yeah, we didn't want to become a drama cast. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so it snuck its way in this week. If I'm being honest, I thought it at least come out. You know, like the Atari VCS, I thought it would come out, and then it would just kind of go flop. into obscure, <laughs> and then flop and go into obscurity. You know, Dan would have one in his cupboard. Um, yeah, but yeah, I just it's just crazy that it's not even coming out, well, potentially not even coming out, and now that they're selling off all these inverted commas exclusive games to build awareness when you said build awareness then i i was just like laughing to myself i was just like 
it's what Ravi said. It's to make money. Let's try and make some money back. And to be honest, they'll probably not make much, will they? But it's it's probably like so much has been put into this. We need to get at least something out of it. Um, mm. Well, yeah. these games, weirdly, because I mean, I've been looking into BBG Entertainment, who is this company they signed a licensing deal with. If you look at Dynablaster, apparently that came out on the iPhone in 2008. So this game that they're kind of big enough as a, an Amico exclusive, it looks like it's been around already for over a decade. I think there may be like changing the graphics to a bit more 3D and then they can call it like a console exclusive or they could until, you know, they're now saying it's going to come out on other platforms as well. So it's all a very strange story. And I mean, like you mentioned then, they said, you know, they actually hinted that the console might never actually make it to market. But their new CEO is saying that you know, they're making sure that the system is stable before they start mass production. So he's hinting that the, you know, it is going to happen apparently. But I think this initially started, God, around 2017, 2018, I think we started talking about this. So it must be a good four or five years that this system yeah. has been in development. And like looking at some of the titles, like there was one called Astrolander, which was meant to come out. And that was uh, developed by a, a 12-year-old called Max Trest. And um, he's kind of like, it, it looks like a decent game and stuff. But even in one of the interviews recently, he's saying, uh, I was going to try and release it on the Amico, but uh, it doesn't look like that will ever, ever come out. So it's coming out for like Retro Pie and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, interesting because they, they had like a few big developers. I remember the... Um, Earthworm Jim one seemed to be lots of big ones, but then there was a lot of these kind of indie style titles and games that looked like a mobile phone game kind of just done up a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a difficult one because obviously the people that crowdfunded it, they deserve to get their hardware. But then, you know, even when this was initially announced, I was like, who the hell is the audience for this thing? And I had the same feelings about the Atari VCS and, you know, my, my gut feeling about that turned out to be right. Even if this thing does come out, I can't see it ever being, particularly now, with all the bad PR and all the negative yeah. headlines, who the hell's going to develop and, and buy I, this? And I think this is more like the Chameleon than the VCS. Like, the mm. VCS has actually come out and been in shops, and they are, like, releasing those new Atari titles, but they're also doing, like, VCS ports for them. So, to a degree, for that small audience, the VCS has kind of done all right. But... um yeah, this this is just nothing. There's it's, it's it's vapor to me. Like I've seen a few pictures of it boxed and stuff like that, but I'm not sure what I believe now. <laughs> like, well, there have been know. people that have played it at events. I mean, that they have been showing them off at some kind of retro gaming events in in America. So there are definitely like a couple of units out there. But again, because it's going to have such a small user install base. I mean, got you know something like the Wii U flops. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. who's going to develop games for this thing? But I mean, you look at, I mean, there are definitely markets for niche consoles. I mean, we were talking about the Evercade last week. And, yeah, you know, that is, that is a prime example. Yeah. yeah, A prime example is something that's done right and has found its audience. But something like this, I mean, even the concept of having, I remember Tommy Tallarico saying, there's no kind of family console, but you know, everyone's got a Wii in the cupboard if you want that kind of thing, or even the Switch. I mean, yeah, we are talking the other week about <laughs> quiz games on the Switch, you know. I'm really into The Chase, the uh, Bradley Walsh game on the uh, <laughs> yeah. on, on the Switch at the moment. I've been playing that pr pretty much every night this week. Um, but uh, even that, I mean, you know, you get the family around, it just feels like if you want that kind of couch family co-op experience, it's already taken care of. On yeah, and, and if people like have, have invested in crowdfunded, then we really do hope they get something for their money, mm. you know. Yeah, and we, we don't want to trash on the console or anything, but if nothing's there, 
you know, nothing's come out. <laughs> Don't yeah. think it ever will. So, yeah, we'll uh, obviously keep an eye on that story. And if you want to see that and uh, everything else we talked about this week, all the stories every week, you don't have to Google around for them and put them in our show notes on your podcast app, or you can head straight to our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, we are going to be joined by a fantastic guest in just a minute, Dave Gilbert, the founder of Wadger Eye Games, coming up in just a sec. Before that, though, um, <laughs> I know you, you were desperate to talk about this because it looks so cool, Ravi. We've talked about this before. A fantastic game, Civitas which we mentioned from actually one of our uh, patron backers. Uh, James, yeah, yeah, this who, is from um, James He's a really Bradley. lovely guy. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's a mad, mad project. He's he's created this world, Civitas, and uh, he uh, Civitas Nihelium was the first one, and then uh, the Mystery of Profundium as well, and they're, they're like solo um, games that you can play. And, and it was uh, made on an Amiga 1200, wasn't it, the the board game? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's a, it's an actual board game graphics made in an amiga he does like videos of how he's actually made it um you know you can get music that you play along with it and uh this is his new kickstarter which is a, a cyberpunk city and it's a uh, 2023 so that's civitas 2023 and you can um basically do everything in there this is the whole civitas world that you can create and uh you know i've played this myself actually and it's quite good i love this idea of a solo board game where you can sit down and play on your own and there's not many around like that and the fact so, that it's built using again this one's built using an amiga 1200 yeah yeah all the graphics are and uh yeah it's just really cool so i thought i'd give it a mention and uh yeah seeing this is a adventure and point and click episode you know some people might be into this yeah so you definitely need to check this out it's still got about um just over a week and a half left on Kickstarter at the time the show comes out, so I'll put that in our show notes as well. Definitely worth backing and uh, yeah, anything that our amazing community are behind. Please let us know your projects and stuff. We love talking about them. So if you want to uh, get involved in that right now, Civitas 2230, build the cyberpunk city of your dreams, uh, made on an Amiga 1200, an incredible looking board game. You can check that out right now on Kickstarter and I'll link that in our show notes. Right, speaking of adventure games, this week's special guest, Dave Gilbert, the founder of Wadger Eye Games, is coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for our favourite part of the show when we welcome on this week's very special guest. And I've got to say, I always look forward to talking about adventure games, you know, one of my favourite genres since I was a kid. And this week, our guest has done some incredible things in the adventure genre over the last 20 years, including games like Blackwell to the apocalyptic Shardlight and the amazing Unavowed as well. Let's welcome on this week's special guest from Wadget Eye Games, Dave Gilbert. How are you doing, Dave? I'm good. I'm good. We're, on, we're sort of on a vacation upstate, and it's very quiet and relaxing, so I'm doing good. Yeah, you sound nice and relaxed today. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you giving us an hour of your vacation to uh, talk about some of these incredible games that you've worked on over the last couple of decades. I mean, we always like to kind of go back to day one with our guests and find out what initially sparked your interest in gaming. I mean, do you remember kind of your first ever gaming experience and where it all began for you? Uh, yeah, um, I must have been 10 or 11 years old. Uh, this dates me a bit, but I remember um, my mom bought me a copy of Infocom's Wishbringer by Brian nice. Moriarty. And I was kind of hooked ever since. I just sort of got really immersed in that. And then later on, I borrowed a copy of the first King's Quest from a friend. And um, 
I, I don't remember much about playing it at the time, but I do remember typing the word jump and Graham jumped and it kind of blew my mind <laughs> that like the, the, the game kind of knew like foresaw what I was going to type. Uh, and then just, I guess that was just the bug. It just bit me and it hasn't let go since. And uh, was that the kind of box version of, of King's Quest? And uh, Yeah, this was the late 80s, so this was a long time ago. Well, yeah, have you kept hold of it? Because they're uh, pretty rare. Oh, God, no. Well, I, so like I said, I had borrowed it from a friend, so I, I, don't, I don't still have it. And I, I, all the boxes I had back then, I don't, I don't have anymore because, you know, you don't expect, you know, X number of years later that you're going to be nostalgic for it. <laughs> so all the Infocom boxes I had and all the little feelies inside – got rid of them all when, when I moved away from home. Yeah, because so. that was like a real addition to the game, wasn't it? Those extra pieces. Um, yeah. yeah, I was wondering uh, what your first home system was then, or like home computer. Uh, it was an Apple IIc. Oh, nice. So there was a kind yeah. of um, uh, like a gaming history uh, in regards to Apple as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, there, was, there were not many um, games that would run on it. Uh, that's why I played a lot of Infocom games because they're all text-based. They can play on anything. So I, I played a lot of Infocom games. So I love those old um, text adventure games as well. I remember, you know, <laughs> nearly throwing my computer out the window <laughs> trying to play, um, got Re- Return to Zork, I think it was, you know, it's like um, oh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as well. I remember that one being, you know, hilarious, but so frustrating. I always call you Hitchhiker's die. a game that hates you. Yeah, it's yeah. very tough. <laughs> it really one, was, it despises you. It, it, it wants you to suffer. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, then we got into graphical adventures, obviously. I mean, were you a fan of the uh, the Sierra and the LucasArts games when they came along? Uh, well, like I said, I had an Apple. <laughs> so um, there was only a limited number of, of uh, Sierra games I could play, and none of the LucasArts games could play on an Apple. Um, I played um, well, the first four King's Quests I could play on on the Apple. Uh, and I played Maniac Mansion on the Nintendo Entertainment System, the original one. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was kind of a very, um, n- not as good version, but I didn't know any better at the time. So uh, I still enjoyed it. But it wasn't until um, years later when I got a, um, a Windows PC, um, like I was still, I, I had gone away to college and I, I didn't have a gaming computer. So I was kind of out of the loop, you know, the like mid to late 90s, I just didn't play a lot of games because I didn't have anything that could play them. But then when I graduated, I kind of um, made up for lost time and I, I played all the LucasArts games and all the Sierra games that I, I wasn't able to play before. So uh, I caught up pretty fast. And were there any of those um, those games that really caught your imagination then from from those companies? Uh, Gabriel Knight, for sure. Um, I finally, When I finally played Gabriel Knight, it was just like, wow, this is... this. this it just did some very interesting things where was so grounded in reality for the most part, but it had added these supernatural elements and merged them so well um, that I, that just really sparked me. Like those, again, those are the types of games I've always made myself. What really got you into programming then? And how did you, you move on from gaming into that? Um, Well, I always, I, like I said, I had an Apple, I keep saying this, so the all I did was program in basic, you know, and I programmed mm. little text adventures in basic. Um, I wrote, I think I wrote, I wrote a Star Trek game, like every nerd, you know, back then. Um, thank God the internet didn't exist and that's long gone. <laughs> but um, I was, uh, what got me into making games uh, seriously was, um, I mean, this isn't the happiest story, but it was 
you know, I was living in Manhattan. It was September of 2001. So, mm. uh, you know what happened. And I was in, I had been let, uh, laid off from, a, um, this terrible corporate job, uh, some few months before. And I was looking for something to kind of keep my mind off of everything. And I discovered, um, adventure game studio and the, uh, a series called reality on the norm, which was kind of this communal project where anyone, if you create a small game set in this town, you make all the assets and characters and locations available to anyone else who wanted to write a story in that town. And there were only a, a few of them uh, available at the time. And I thought I could probably make one of these. And I did. I made a short game in a weekend where you play the Grim Reaper, um, which sort of says a lot about my state of mind at the time. And people seemed to like it. And so I kept making them. And uh, about four years later, five years later, I decided I didn't, uh, I couldn't envision doing anything else. And I thought maybe I could make this work. And 16 years later, I am still doing that. How was that kind of done then? Were you all collaborating online or was it, uh, and how was it shared? Well, it was, uh, there was a website and uh, that was sort of where all of the files were gathered, but there was like someone in charge of the website. You, you wrote them and say, Hey, here's my reality in the norm game. Can you host it? And, and they did um, that kind of thing. So, and, and most of the, um, like the art and stuff, as I said, it was all shared. Uh, you so you had all of these pre-existing assets that you could use to create your own, which was the only reason why I was able to make one because I cannot draw to save my life. Um, and you know, I would add maybe I would add like a background, like a very badly made background or something to to the game. And um, it was it was kind of an interesting thing. Um, it, it was bound to collapse under its own weight eventually, as too many people made too many games. But for a while, it was just really neat, you know, kind of taking other people's ideas, putting your own spin on them, creating your own, putting it back out there, and then seeing what other people do with your ideas. It was very, very cool to be a part of that. Um, and uh, But uh, as I said, eventually it just became too big. So anyone who wanted to like check it out got overwhelmed very fast. And so it, <laughs> did, it, it, it died in a matter of years, which is a shame. But if it wasn't for reality on the norm, I probably wouldn't be making games now. And I think having a team working with you as well must help a lot with the process of making an adventure game because i mean you, you mentioned that you're making adventure games on your apple II as a kid mm-hmm. just at home and I, I remember trying to do the same and a friend of me we, we tried to get together to make an adventure game on a, a bbc micro yeah no we tried to do the whole thing in basic on our own well, we had loads of bits of paper trying to keep track of what and we just completely lost track and found out that we were way out of our depth so I think in many ways, you now adventure games feel like they're one of the most difficult genres to design and program. I mean, what right, are the, the kind of the, the challenges side, from your but perspective? On the plus side, um, the audience is very small and extremely demanding. So we get that going for us. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> what, would you, what would you say for, from the making side of it? I mean, what, what are kind of the, the biggest challenges to look out for then for people thinking of making their own games? I mean, the biggest challenge is that every single thing in the game is is kind of bespoke as often you i don't know if i'm using that word right but often you make like a platformer you make a series of animations that you that those animations are used throughout the entire game you know running jumping climbing whatever shooting it's you use those same animations over and over and over again throughout the entire game but for a game like this often you know you'll put so much effort into an animation you only see for five seconds and then you never see it again and the whole game is like that so it's um, that's the most challenging thing is just uh, is creating all the assets for it. That it's that can take a very long time. 
The mid-2000s seemed like a bit of a kind of wilderness time for adventure games. Uh, they <laughs> kind of fell out of vogue, uh, especially like point and clicks and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Did you want to kind of keep them alive and maybe see a bit of a revival of that genre? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say because um, there was this sense, especially in the early 2000s when like Sierra was pretty much gone and LucasArts wasn't really making anything new. and um, There was this sense that like, especially among indies, Adventure games had their diehard fans, and especially like they were. Uh, if you go into the the adventure game, you know, kind of fan sites, there were it was a very vocal group, and so it felt like, oh, if I make one, I'll be a hero, you know. And it was a lot of developers did feel that way, and then when the game didn't do well, there was this sense of, oh, you know, like what happened? Uh, I, you know, I guess people don't really like adventure games after all, and it was uh, that kind of, I think it, the fact that the, the genre has kind of moved beyond that at this point, because now that the technology is so available, it's a lot easier to make the games. The, um, uh, what, what's, what's the term? The uh, barrier to entry is a lot lower um, mm. and that more of them are coming out from just absolutely fascinating creators. You get, there's so many different kinds that you can't really put adventure games in this one box anymore. Um, where it always used to be, you know, oh, here's what you you know, here's, you know, uh, all adventure games were kind of painted with the same brush. It's like you could have like a Western um, adventure game or a science fiction adventure game, but they were both considered like the same kind of game, which makes no sense, right? Because like if, if something comes out and doesn't do well, like it's not that adventure games don't do well, it's that specific game didn't do well. And yeah. I think when I when I started, there, w- there was a bit of that, bit of that feeling of, oh, you know, people are going to love me for just making an adventure game. Um, and when it, it came out, and for, fortunately, I didn't hadn't spent a lot of time on my first game. Um, I got it out reasonably quickly and cheaply because I didn't have a lot of time and money to work with. Um, and it came out and suddenly I wasn't this overnight success. And it was like, Oh, like I got to actually do work now. <laughs> I got to do marketing <laughs> and stuff. And because like I had really wanted, I couldn't envision doing anything else. I, this was like, I had determined that this was going to be my livelihood, that this is what I wanted to do. I did not want to go back to like uh, getting an office job again. Cause I hated every office job I ever had. I was determined to make this work somehow. And I just made it work. I just kept going. And I think I, I was, I don't know if I'm answering, I'm kind of drifting off the, the subject of your question a bit, but I'm, I'm just always, I'm just considering myself very lucky and uh, uh, grateful every day that I'm still able to do this. Well, so you founded your company, um, Wajitai in tw- 2006. So, I mean, when you were setting up the company and going professional full-time with this then, I mean, what was kind of the story there and how did you do it? <laughs> I don't know. Um, pure hubris. Uh, I, I think like how it started basically was when I decided to make them um, commercially. I had I had spent a year uh, living in Korea. I, I had I had like I said I had a number of office jobs that I wasn't happy in, and I decided that I needed to shake things up. So I quit my job and rented out my apartment and um, did the English teaching thing in Korea for a year. And I came back and my apartment was still being rented out. So I couldn't move in, couldn't, couldn't move back home. So I was living with my parents and I was around 30 years old at the time. There's nothing worse than being 30 years old and living with your parents, even if it's temporary, when you don't have a job. <laughs> it's the worst feeling. Yeah. So I, I went to this coffee shop with my laptop and worked on and made a little game 
called the Shiva. Uh, it's just kind of a way of, of pretending I was working. Like I'm going to work. And, and then I, I finished that game and then I decided maybe I should try selling this. Um, I, I just want to see where it goes. And I, I did. So I, I added voice acting. I, I had a bunch of friends who um, I, I was part of an improv group. And so I asked them if they could um, do voices for the game. I didn't know much about voice acting at the time. And um, I started selling it. And um, like I said, like I, it wasn't an overnight success, but I think the fact that I had made a name for myself in the freeware scene helped a little bit. And um, the subject matter enabled me to kind of like tailor my marketing such as it was like, okay, it's Jewish themed. I'll talk to like Jewish organizations and Jewish press. And I could, I could focus, you know, my marketing on that. Um, and I think that that helped. And even though it didn't sell that much, I was living you know, in a in a very inexpensive studio apartment by myself. I wasn't married, didn't have a family then, so I, I was able to make a not, maybe not a decent living, but a a living. <laughs> I was able to like pay my monthly mortgage and you know buy my groceries and stuff like that, and just enough to justify keeping doing it. And then I made another game, and I just kind of kept going. And it just sort of grew organically from there. It really took a few titles to kind of get uh, indie games established and uh, to be taken seriously as well. I, I can imagine it was hard coming from that angle. It was, but I think I benefited from starting off when the scene was very small because I was able, because I kind of, I was able to keep it going. It was a, it was a small pond that nobody knew about but it started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was able to kind of grow with that. So the fact like when I release a game now, because I've been doing it for so long um, and I was, and I was doing it back in 2006 when so few people were doing it, just the fact that you were doing it got you a bit of attention. Um, It didn't mean people would buy it. That was, that was the challenge. Like back then there were so few games, no one was taking them seriously. Now, people take them seriously, but they're just too many damn games. So it's sort of <laughs> same, same coin, different, same coin, different <laughs> side or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's uh, so I just sort of, I benefited just from the scene being very small and getting in at just the right time. But I, I was also, I kind of lucked into doing the right things. Um, I kept the games very small. So I was able to kind of get i was able to iterate on the feedback like i create a game sell it like oh i made all these mistakes i'll you know my next game i'll i won't make those mistakes i'll i'll do something else and i made the next game in like four months or whatever and then the next game in seven months and i was able to kind of learn the right and wrong way to do things reasonably quickly because i kept my term my my development time very short because i had to because i had so little money to work with Oh, Emerald City Confidential uh, was set in the uh, magical land of Oz, but yes. with some twists. Um, what was the story of that game? Oh, that was a funny thing. I, I, I'm amazed that they um, that they chose me. I was I had only written I, I had done the first two Blackwell games and the Shiva, and it was 2007. No, I hadn't even written the second Blackwell game yet. Um, I had given a talk at GDC. Um, they had asked me to speak because of the Shiva, and it was so I was so ignorant. I had no idea what GDC was. Like I had no idea. Um, I didn't realize this was a really big deal at the time. 
And um, a friend of mine, uh, Amanda Finch of Avion Games, she um, invited me to a party at uh, hosted by Play First. And I went and the, I started talking to the creative director there. And he says, yeah, I really, I really like your work. You know, would you be interested in, in um, getting a game published by us? And um, I'm like, well, you know, okay. I, I mean, I, and then I went back to my hotel and I looked up play first and I saw the games they did. And it was all these like cutesy cartoony, you know, uh, diner dash games. And I'm like, this, this isn't my thing, you know? And I kind of, I put it out of my head because I, I was, I thought it was just, you know, a drunken conversation at a party. And then like four or five months later, they contacted me again and they're like, no, yeah, we really want to do this with you. <laughs> like, oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, sure. Well, let, look, uh, let's talk. Let's let's do this. And uh, so I almost I almost completely blew it. <laughs> I was again very very lucky. Um, and I had always um, I was very inspired by a game called Discworld Noir, which oh, yeah. took Discworld and put a noir spin on it. And I loved the Oz books as a kid, and I always thought I would love to do the same thing for Oz if given the chance. And I pitched that to play first. They liked the idea. And, and so we made the game. You know, I'm playing adventure games as well. I always kind of like the, the way that a lot of the LucasArts games, you know, the character either couldn't die or the die is kind of a, you know, a joke and you wouldn't have to start the game all over. And I know like, for example, in the Shiver, the main character, Russell, he can die, but when you die, you normally get put straight back to just the moment before you died. Yeah. I mean, is that a, a design decision that you've always kind of stuck to then? And did you find it frustrating when you had to start games completely from the beginning when you died? Um, I mean, I think like the, I think the problem with player death is that when it becomes frustrating, when you suddenly have to redo a chunk of the game or, or something like that. And I found that um, when I would write a game, especially a, like a noir story like the Shiva, where there is danger, and if you remove death from the equation, suddenly there's no danger. That danger is completely mm. neutered. And so I'm like, oh yeah, he can die whatever, you know, who, who says he can't die. And so I threw that in there, but of course, you know, I want to ease the frustration of it, put in an auto save to make sure you can, you don't lose much progress, that kind of thing. Um, I, I have no problem with player death if the game calls for it. You can't die. Well, I mean, <laughs> the Blackwell is about death and ghosts, but you don't get a game yeah. over um, by doing <laughs> the wrong thing. Cause it's just not that kind of game unavowed is that kind of game uh, where this is a dangerous world and if you know and you can die and i i don't want to remove that but at the same time i don't want you to feel frustrated so i you know it's just a flash of white start over that kind of thing and in old skies what i'm making now is that i'm kind of since it's a time travel story i'm kind of it's kind of a prince of persia thing where when you die you just rewind a little bit and you can you know and she retains all of her memories of before she, of 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 how and why she died and she can use that to s solve puzzles or whatever. So I'm kind of using player death as, as a part of gameplay. Um, it's all about how you do, uh, how you handle it. It's all about how you handle it. There's no deaths in there like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Then. No, I, I think what people <laughs> when it's like, oh yeah, you can't, LucasArts enabled it so you can't die. What they really mean is that they, they made the game fair. Like they, no one mm. liked unfair deaths. Like in King's Quest, you could be playing for a long time. You know, you use the wrong, you, you, you step in the wrong place, you fall off a cliff, and then game over. I think that's that's unfair. That's very unfair. 
Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to die at all. <laughs> at least that's my point of view. Um, I think most of it is the unfairness that people didn't like. I mean, I remember, you know, those earlier games as well, kind of figuring out the user interface when like, LucasArts were figuring out their uh, their scum engine and that kind of thing, and, you know, the different elements and the way that you would control the players. I mean, obviously, that's something that's developed quite a lot over the last couple of decades. But I think what kind of elements do you look at to make a good adventure game, in your opinion, then? Obviously, you've got the story, the most <laughs> important thing, I imagine, but outside of that. I mean, honestly, it's like if if there was a a set of rules to what makes a good adventure game, like I would be a lot more successful than I am. Mm. It's, it's really, there's no way to please everybody. And so I focus mostly on pleasing myself. Like, Oh, this is what I like. This is what I would like in a game. And I try to focus on making myself happy as excuse me because once i make myself happy then i'm pretty sure other people will be happy too and it also um i'm a big believer in like creator intent and um where it's like if i like you can't if i'm enthusiastic about what i'm making then the player's going to feel that too um and if you if you're if you're phoning it in the player will be able to tell that sense that as well um whenever i i try to make a game that I'm, i'm making purely for capitalist reasons like Oh, it's this is what sells well. So I'm going to make this, even though my heart's not in it. It's like it, 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 the sales bear that out. You know, people can tell mm. when that when you're not being sincere, and um, I think that's that's the most important thing when trying to make something quote good. It's do I like it? And I don't think there's any there's no such thing as a good or bad idea. There's only good or bad um, execution of that idea. And there's so many great ideas that are just handled terribly. And there's some ideas that are very basic and boring, but are handled so well that you're like, oh, wow, this is, this is genius. Like you read, you know, a synopsis of what Night in the Woods is about. It sounds incredibly boring, but it's executed so well. Like it's just done so well that you love it. It's one of the most engaging games I've played in a long time. Well, the Blackwell Legacy you mentioned earlier was uh, another popular title. Uh, What was the background with that one? Blackwell, um, that was, uh, at first it was me trying to do Gabriel Knight. <laughs> I was trying to just do for New York what Gabriel Knight did for New Orleans. Uh, I, I think it was, um, it was a, a movie, it was a Hitchcock movie I watched called, I think it was Family Plot. But in the movie, there was this woman who was talking to a spirit guide um, named Geronimo, Native American spirit guide named Geronimo. You know what it was, it was the, it was the late 60s. And she would constantly be talking to Geronimo and um, it was, it was never quite established whether he was real or not. But I remember thinking as I was watching this movie is like, wow, it must really suck to be Geronimo (laughs) constantly being at this woman's beck and call. And uh, I wanted, I wanted to write a a story from the point of view of a spirit guide and the character of Joey kind of formed from that. And then I, I came up with the character of Rosa sort of a foil for, you know, just just, uh, as someone, as a good foil for that kind of character. And then the whole series kind of formed formed from there. Um, and I've always been obsessed with ghost stories ever since I was a kid. Um, and so I, I had a, uh, it was, it took, and so yeah, that, that's basically how Blackwell started. Well, the graphics in a lot of your titles resemble the, the 90s style adventure games. I mean, was that a conscious decision to kind of look like the, from that era and a bit retro, or do you just like the 2D style? I mean, it's, it's never, it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision as what could I afford to do and have it still look good? 
Um, I, I couldn't have gone any higher resolution than what I did. Um, it would, it, if I did, it would either take way too long or look terrible. So I kept it with that style because it was manageable. Not so much that it, I wasn't really going for the retro thing. It just, that type of style worked well for what I wanted to make and for what I was able to make. I did learn, um, after a while that you couldn't just, it wasn't a good idea to just to make any game in that style. It, you needed to like, if you're going to do that, that retro-ish pixel art, you need to pick a, a style or, um, or a subject matter where the pixel art will work with your idea, kind of give it that like gritty texture. Like Gemini Rue works really well um, with mm. that low res art because it just sort of, you know, it adds, adds that griminess to everything and it works really well. Primordia, same thing, you know, um, and Blackwell, um, especially as, as the series went on where it, it got a lot darker, it worked really, really well. Um, Unavowed, we, we bumped up the resolution. I think it worked really well there. Um, Old Skies is not that type of game, which is why we're going um, a higher resolution and being more colorful for that one. But I think it, it wasn't so much a deliberate choice as a, a choice made by circumstance. So in a, in, in a way it was a choice, but not for the reasons you're thinking of. And I suppose, fortunately, I mean, you know, pixel art has really become fashionable again over the last like ten years or so, hasn't yeah. it? So, although it's hard yeah. to really call it retro anymore, it, like especially yeah. back then when it was just everyone was doing pixel art, and mm. the way people did pick, do pixel art now is so different from the way it was done like in the early mid '90s that it could hardly be called the same art style anymore. It's just so different. Like people will call it, you know, people will call Blackwell eight bit. Or, and there's like, it's not, or even 16 bit. Like it's not. It's, you, you couldn't do that on an 8 bit machine. <laughs> no, you couldn't. You couldn't. You couldn't, you couldn't. Uh, uh, that rev- resolution as well. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, even the Shiva uses alpha channels. Like you can't really, you couldn't do that back then. <laughs> so it's just, yeah. So it's, it's hardly retro. Even, even in 2006 when I started, it wasn't, it wasn't even really retro then either. Well, you mentioned Unavowed, and that was, you know, quite a complex title with a lot of different characters, a lot of different outcomes as well. Was that quite a, a complex game to develop then? Was it quite ambitious at the time? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I had a feeling it would be. Um, but aside from, like, the the mechanics of, like, keeping track of all the choices and managing, you know, the, the, the switching of the party members, and that, that actually didn't take very long. It was like two weeks of prototyping. Okay, it works. And then I just use those systems for the rest of the project. Because um, really, it, it's like all the, the different, uh, you know, the different paths and the different characters and the slightly different stories, depending on who you bring with you. Um, individually, um, those were nothing I hadn't done already and knew I could do well. It was just adding, you know, the five different paths through each mission. That is what made it um, not necessarily more complicated. It just took much longer um, because it, I had to write several different paths um, for each uh, for, for each mission. Um, so it took longer. It wasn't necessarily more complicated. It just took longer. So that that was the main issue with it. But I, it's funny because after a while, I didn't even I didn't even think about oh this is complicated. It just um, I just, it, it was, it was developing, it was thinking about the backstory of, of what happened in the back, what happened before you got there. You know, once I could establish, okay, here's what happened. Once the team got there, everything kind of fell into place because I knew what each person could do and how they would be able to solve the, you know, f- get to where they needed to be, that kind of thing. So it, it, it was not necessarily more complicated. It was just more work 
and took longer. That's really it. I can imagine that um, helped the kind of replayability factor as well as having some like RPG elements in there. Did that kind of add to the game and add a new audience? Very much so. And I think um, I, I kept comparing it to Bioware even like in even up to like the the, the day I sold it, um, from the day I started making it to the game, it the, the, the day it launched, I kept referring to it as like Bioware ish, like it's the Bioware narrative structure, which is not like terribly sexy, but it was the easiest way to get across what I was doing because we all know what that means. You know, you 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 pick a party and you go out, and depending on who you bring with you, they might react to different things, and we all know that, and it's a type of game that um didn't necessarily fall out of fashion but bioware is not even making those games anymore so uh, or at least not regularly and people miss those kind of games and i think making that connection uh early on is like oh here's this it's like that thing that you like <laughs> and that that i think brought in a, a lot of people especially even like um, you know, the the Dragon Age uh, creative director, you know, Mike Laidlaw, he, he started tweeting about it and um, people involved in RPGs started tweeting about it and, and playing it and commenting on it. And it just brought in all these new fans and new audiences that I, I probably wouldn't have gotten with a standard adventure game. That's pretty awesome. I was uh, seeing again that, uh, total luck. Not not something I intended to do. <laughs> anything I do, anything I do right, is purely by accident. Believe me. <laughs> yeah, you, you never know what's going to hit. Yeah, um, like Unvowed as well recently came out on the Switch. Um, what do what you think about the Switch as like a platform for adventure and indie games? I think it works really well because I, I love being able to play, um, you know, uh, on, on the go, you know, on the plane or whatever. Um, I, I'm on my computer all day and being able to, if I want to play a game, I prefer to be off my computer. Um, excuse me. So that, that I'm glad we were able to get on the Switch because uh, it's just, I didn't know it was possible. <laughs> I remember it's a good platform for adventure games as well. I remember playing Thimbleweed Park on a flight for about six hours once, and you know the flight just flew by playing it. Oh so, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Especially that game is so so large. You could just get, yeah. you know, just just feeling out the town and walking around. That'll that'll take up an entire flight just by itself. Finding the pixels—that was a nightmare. <laughs> Pieces of dust. Pieces. Of yes, dust. that was it. <laughs> we mentioned before the um, AGS, the Adventure Game Studios Development System. So. Tell us a bit about that then and kind of the advantages and disadvantages that it had. And uh, is, is that still in use today? What, what's oh, yeah. kind of the state I, use, I still use it all the time. It's still being updated. Right. Uh, I mean, it's an old engine, but it's it's old in the way that Photoshop is old. You know, it's it's still got, you know, parts. You know, it's a little bit clunky, but people still use it because it's the best at doing what it does. Uh, and that's that's AGS. It, it knows there's, there's a certain power in... Um, let me back up a bit. A few years ago, I tried uh, making the transition over to Unity. And after two months of trying to get my head around it, I gave up. It was just, I wanted AGS because there's a certain power in, in, in working with a tool or an engine that knows exactly what you're trying to make. Like AGS is for 2D adventure games and it has all of the, the systems in place to help you make that very thing. It knows exactly what you're trying to do. Um, and so that that's that's very useful. That's it's right out of the box. It can do all the things that I need, and I'm so used to it. I can make it do things that just because I know it so well, I can make it do things that uh, I couldn't do in another engine that I didn't know as well. So I I keep using it because 
it works and I'm familiar with it and I made good games with it. It's worked so far. Um, the disadvantages, I mean, there's out of the, the hundred things it does well, there's like five annoying things that like, uh, that will, that could potentially make me switch. The, it's very difficult to port. That's why it's, it was so hard to get on the switch. Um, it, uh, when you update the game, you can invalidate old saves, which is a very big problem when you want to like create some fixes and updates. Um, but you'll break everyone's save games. That's a big problem. Um, it's also, you know, it's, it's, it updates, but it's slow to update. Um, and it's, it's kind of run by volunteers instead of like, you know, a, a, a legit company. Um, so there, there's a couple of small things that are a problem. Also, it, it handles resources very inefficiently. It'll, it burns more processing power than it probably needs to just because mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, because it's an adventure game, it doesn't rely on things like speed and efficiency. Um, and so, uh, because you don't have to rely on like timing and things being split second. And so it, it, it doesn't handle, so it's not optimized well at all. Um, so that's a big problem. But like in terms of actually making the game, <laughs> like it, it does everything you need. So uh, I'm, I'm still happy with it. Well, you published uh, Tech Babylon as well, which is a cyberpunk kind of atmospheric game. Mm-hmm. Like, what were the inspirations for that and uh what what did you kind of like think of going into the cyberpunk genre okay well i i was aware of techno babylon um the developer had made a, a few freeware games um called techno babylon and um i was at adventure x and i think 2013 i believe and um I had I had just started working with Ben Chandler full time. He's the the artist. Um, wow, it's almost been a decade since I've worked with him. But anyway, uh, and he he showed off Techno Babylon. He was going to make it a a, a bigger commercial game, uh, and originally he was going to release it in chunks, you know, small episodes. And uh, he had been working with Ben Chandler on the art before I hired Ben Chandler, and. I saw the game at Adventure X and it had everything I loved. Like I love cyberpunk. I love, you know, it's also, you know, gritty noirish city stuff. I loved it. And I just went up to him afterward and I said, Hey, look, you know, I, I'm, I would love to publish this. Um, you know, you're already working with Ben anyway. And it seems silly for him to work on like another project. Like I'm, I'm, so why don't we just make it official? Like it becomes a game that we publish and we're doing the art for it. And he said, okay. And he sent me, first he sent me a design document that, that showed me like the entire story. And I loved the whole thing. Um, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, you've played it, so you know. And um, yeah, that, that's basically it. I saw the game, I liked the game and I took the game on. That's, that's it. <laughs> I love that cyberpunk adventure as well. It's kind of like, obviously you've got elements of kind of Blade Runner and stuff like that, I guess, yeah. were probably an influence there as well in, in terms of the look of it. It's a very optimistic cyberpunk future as well, mm. which I really appreciated. It's like this government actually tries to help people. It's like the systems are good. It's the people who are sometimes bad. And I, I kind of really liked that. Is the sequel to Techno Babylon still in the works and kind of technically yes? Um, the developer has um, some health issues that he's been right. dealing with, so it's been um, just kind of uh, he it'll when he feels up to working on it again, I'd be happy to jump back on. 
but but until then all i want him to do is is get better obviously so i can't yeah. really i can't really say because that's that's personal and you know that's he's still worth tinkering with it but for the most for the right it's not like one of our active projects I saw you moving to 3D graphics for that game, though, because and I do remember that um, you know if I think back in the day, Monkey Island Four was a prime example of you know adventure games moving to 3D that yeah. got a bit of a mixed reaction to say the least. I mean, do you think modern audiences will be more receptive to that? And uh, funny, why did you want to do 3D? I found that so funny because it's like Monkey Island, uh, Monkey Island Four was like over 20 years ago. <laughs> we can do better yeah. now, and also back then, I would think that was like. 1999 or maybe 2000 it was 2000 late 2000 and it was there were no real concrete examples of of how to do a 3d adventure game well like no one had really done it you know and as people keep using oh what about simon 3d what about monkey island 4 and it's like yeah like you know people ask me i hope it's not like those two games that are universally known as terrible it's like well (laughs) yeah we'll we'll do our best <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's like we, we'll try not to make it terrible. How about that? Uh, I don't know. Like, th- there's no way to answer that question. Well, I guess you probably learned a lot from you know their mistakes. You know, <laughs> in 20 years, I guess the entire industry has. I mean, it's just if uh, with Ben, Ben was doing the art. He even though it was 3D, like Ben knows what looks good, and he won't sign off on anything, even in 3D, if it doesn't look. So, like, mm. I trust him, and uh, and sadly, you know that that game's not like i said not an active project at the moment um but we hope to get back to it at some point do you think it's kind of an exciting time for adventure games we're seeing like loads of new stuff come out and follow-ups for games um yeah well i think like it's just been an exciting time for games in general narrative games yeah. in general um there's so many great games coming out by small teams and just there's just so many there's just so many games it's uh it's almost a little overwhelming at times um I just think it's an exciting time in general, not just for adventure games, but for all games. Yeah, I wonder if stuff like, you know, obviously the new Monkey Island game, um, that, you know, I've seen so much hype for that online, you know, yeah. whether that's going to kind of bring a lot of, you know, adventure fans kind of back into the fold and then they're going to explore a bit more about what's out there, maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like, if I, if I feel a little, um, you know, uh, distant about discussing that, it's because, like I said, I'm always very resistant to like painting adventure games like putting all adventure games in one box because i know Mm. like this has happened so often it's like some big high profile adventure game comes out and maybe doesn't sell well or is reviewed very badly and suddenly the narrative becomes oh yeah look we all we knew adventure games sucked and then that then people stop like wanting to talk about my stuff again um so (laughs) it's like so that this tends to happen not that i think the new monkey island game will suck it's just i've been there before like during the big kickstarter renaissance it's like all these high profile adventure games are exciting you know all these new games are being kickstarted you just suit larry's back you know jane jensen's back you know all of this and so like suddenly i was interviewed all the time everyone wanted to talk to me and then those games came out didn't do well and like yep, no one wanted to talk to me anymore because suddenly all adventure games sucked <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> so i kind of like i'm very hesitant to be like yeah exciting time for adventure games because of monkey island yeah it's hard for me to get excited about that i'm excited about monkey island just i, I hesitate to say what it means you know because i'm a little i'm a little leery of that <laughs> I mean, Dave, you know, you keep doing your own thing. And obviously, you know, the stuff, your fans love the games that you produce. Oh, thank you. Um, that's, what I, that's what I bank on. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? You do, that's all you can do, really, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, what can we expect then from our Games over the next kind of couple of years? And obviously, what, what projects have you got coming up that okay. you're excited about? Well, first coming up uh, is a game we're publishing called The Excavation of Hobbs Barrow, um, which we just call Hobbs Barrow because 
it's just easier. Um, it was, it used to be called Incant, oh my God, this is why I changed the name because I can never remember the name of it. Incantamentum, Incantamentum, I think, or Incantamum, Incantamentum, something like that. Um, but we changed the name to Hobbs Barrow and it's a kind of spooky British folk horror you know, a woman comes to the sleepy English village in Victorian times to excavate a barrow and nothing bad happens. That's a lie. A lot of bad right. things happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's coming out soon. Um, very, we just announced that about a, um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, that one's coming out soon. We just finished the voice acting for it and we're just putting it through some rounds of testing and that'll probably be coming out in September. Um then we're, we're, I'm also publishing a game called Nighthawks, excuse me, um, by Richard Cobbett. Uh, that, um, we're more heavily involved in that one because we did all the art for it. And that is, a, is best described as a vampire bloodlines meets sunless sea hybrid. It's a visual novel about vampires. Uh, and it's very RPG-ish. Um, it's, and if you're familiar with Richard Cobbett's writing, uh, it's pretty much everything you'd expect from him. Um, mm. It's really fun, really sweet, very dark. I can't wait to show more. Richard's kind of going through a lot. He's been moving. He's going through a move, so that's that's a bit... Uh, he's kind of slowed down. That is happening. Uh, and lastly, there is Old Skies, which is my personal project, the one I'm writing. And that is a time travel story. So that, that's that's been fun. That's been fun to work on. I released a demo for that um, for Steam Next Fest last June. So you can play that. It's still up there. Um, so yeah, that's cool. That's a, that's a time, 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 bleh, time travel story about a lady who takes people into the past and nothing bad happens then either. <laughs> I don't believe you. You're, you're right not to believe me. <laughs> I'm not a good liar. <laughs> Well, Dave, it sounds a really exciting time for uh, you and the company. And, uh, you. you know, as someone who's always loved adventure games and games with great narratives, you know, keep up the good work. Thank you um, so much. Yeah, I, I, it's all I can do. <laughs> all I can do is keep well, working. Well, I'll link up your uh, website with all your games on there in our show notes as well. I employ everyone to go check them out and um, really appreciate you taking the time from your vacation to, uh, to check. I mean, it's Dave. kind of a working vacation. We're like, we need to get out of the city. So like, I'm, we've got our laptops set up here, but we, now we can look out at trees and it's lovely. <laughs> a bit nicer than the city. Yes, very much so. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. <laughs> Bye-bye.